right, I think we're about ready. I think everybody is more or less here. Thanks for coming, particularly when I forgot to put it in the paper. So uh, I appreciate, I don't know how you all found out, or you must have remembered and be, be a good scheduler. So that, I appreciate that. Um, tonight, we're going to be working on Epicurus, who is in some ways the greatest philosopher ever, because this is the entire collected works of Epicurus right here. And so that, that is what we look for. And a lot of this is, is extraneous data. So, so you know, forget, forget Aristotle. He wrote too damn much. You know, it just, it just wears you out. Socrates, no. Uh, yeah, we like somebody who leaves a little bit. Actually, what's, what's, what's very nice about um, Epicurus is he left us summaries of his own works. So that is, that is a very rare event, literally, in philosophical history for someone to have left you uh, primarily their own summaries. Um, the only works we're moderately certain that survived from Epicurus um, were a series of letters he wrote to students and supporters. Uh, these were collected and summarized and reproduced in Diogenes Laertes' Lives of Eminent Philosophers, Volume 10. Um, followed, uh, that was, but that was about 500 years after, uh, after Epicurus lived. So Diogenes, who we'll t- talk about a little bit, is 3rd century AD. Epicurus is 2nd and 3rd century BC. So there's about 500 year gap between uh, Epicurus's life and the first surviving writings we have that are attributable to Epicurus. Um, since Diogenes' time, uh, we've also been in the 1780s and again in 1850s in the Vatican Library, uh, discoveries were made of some uh, texts that are attributable to either Epicurus or some students probably a generation after Epicurus. And so there's also a new collection of fragments uh, that have come out in the last 50 years that are translations and sort of pinning these together. Recently, well, recently being in the 1970s, uh, some badly damaged texts were found in excavation um, around, uh, oh, now I can't remember where the excavations were around. Uh, what was the city that was destroyed by the volcano in Italy was? Pompeii. Pompeii, yes, thank you. Outside of Pompeii, there is a city that was not nearly so badly damaged, whose name I cannot remember, uh, and they were found there uh, at a library of what looks to have been an Epicurean philosopher. So um, there may be, if, if some of those remnants can be translated and saved, and they're getting better at that all the time, we may actually have some, in the next 20 years, we may have more text by Epicurus than we've ever had. Uh, but that's still, we'll have to see. Expensive, time-consuming, um, and, and, a, and a technical challenge. But perhaps we can pull it off. Uh, again, Epicurus lived 341 to 270. Um, this is in um, post-old golden age Athens. The Greek world had been conquered by the Macedonians, uh, Alexander in particular. Alexander dies, and then you get the political turmoil that follows the death of Alexander. Um, this is Epicurus's life. He overlaps with that. He was born in a colony of Athens to parents who must have been relatively poor. Um, and then he moved around a little bit, began studying philosophy uh, under uh, uh, several teachers, seemed heavily influenced by Democritus and the Atomists, the guys that we started with, um, the, the natural philosophy school. 
Um, I'll talk about how he broke with them and ended up founding his own school, we think potentially first in Lesbos, and he may or may not have been kicked off the island by the students of Aristotle, because remember, Aristotle had a school there. So it looks like he was chased out of town, although how true that is, we don't know. Settled in Athens and started his own school there called the Garden, um, and taught there for the rest of his life. He was exceptionally well-known and well-regarded in his own lifetime, so much so that even philosophers who disliked him said nice things about him. They said, well, his philosophy is no good. We think he's wrong-headed, but what a hell of a guy he is. We really like him. So, uh, and, and, and this was sort of Epicurus, and you'll see why as we read through his principal doctrines here, why, why Epicurus is, uh, is well-known amongst other reasons is he basically was completely antithetical to the society he lived in, was heretical, um, anti-political, really makes Socrates look like he has nothing as far as aggressiveness in, in, in being uh, an anti-populist, and yet somehow died in a hugely popular and famous guy, uh, and was noted as such throughout history well into the Roman times. Significantly, he was hugely influential on the foundation and growth of Stoicism, about which the Stoics and the Epicureans agree on many things and disagree on many things. But uh, what they agree on, much of that comes from Epicurus. And so this is important to know, because that's where we'll move next to Stoicism. So uh, Epicurus worked in two major fields. One is natural philosophy, what we would call the sciences today. And if you look at the works that he wrote during his lifetime, which exceed 150, by the way, we have 150 listed works by Epicurus, none of which survive. Again, perhaps thankfully. Uh, but no, I guess, but, but so he was working a lot. More than half of them are on questions like the nature of the atom, how the celestial bodies move through space. Um, on, on the sea, on creatures that swim in the sea. He was heavily invested in natural philosophy, an attempt to understand the natural world with reason. This came directly from the Atomists, Democritus and, and, and that school that we talked about first, the Milesian school um, that we did the second evening lecture on, was on. What's important about this is he, the reason he wanted to study natural philosophy is because he thought men live in the thrall of superstition and fear. We fear the gods, we fear the judgment of the gods, we fear death, we fear the judgment of our fellow human beings, we fear the unknown, essentially. And he said the goal of philosophy is to liberate men from fear. And to do that, you have to liberate them from superstition. This is the key to understanding just about everything that Epicurus does. He wants us to have no superstition at all. <clears throat> if you can achieve that, he thought, then we would have no fear. Because there is nothing to fear as far as Epicurus was concerned. We do not need fear. It, it just hinders us if it does not help us. The goal of Epicurean philosophy is called ataraxia. Which probably the best translation, all of this is, you know, what's your best translation, is probably tranquility. Equanimity of mind and body. 
a joyous peacefulness. Now, people have accused Epicurus, as you'll see why, of being a hedonist. Hedonisa is the Greek foundation from which that is derived, and it's the word for pleasure as such. Now, hedonism is not the goal. Pleasure as such is not the goal of Epicureanism. It's important to note this. Several places in the, in the principal doctrines that we'll work through, the translation, the word in the translation is pleasure. But it's the pleasure of ataraxia, the pleasure of tranquility, peacefulness, quiet joy, meditative bliss, if you will, is what he's after. So he shows up in Athens, sets up his school in a garden. This is the step one that's crucial to note. He establishes his school in a garden. All the other philosophical schools were either in political meeting houses. This would be the Pythagorean sort of temples. Or in public spaces. Because the purpose of your politics was either A, to build a, a foundation, sort of a religious foundation that gave you power, organization, and strength with which you could organize and, and affect your society. Or B, like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, to influence the leading thinkers of your age to change your society. So you either need a tightly organized centralized group along the sort of hierarchical church model, the Pythagoreans, those other schools that did this, the illusion mysteries, or you needed to have a public space where you could influence the leaders of the time. Epicurus sets himself up in a garden. Why? Because he did not think you should have anything to do with the people around you at all. <laughs> Politics is a recipe for bad ataraxia. <laughs> You will know no peace or tranquility in your life if you mess with politics. It's just going to... What's important to note is this ran counter to the entire belief system of the Athenian way of life, and in fact, the whole Greek way of life. To be a citizen, to be a member of the civic organization, to work for, serve the betterment of your community, this was the goal of life. This is what you were shooting for. Acclaim, fame, notability, wealth, power. Epicurus is like, no, 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 no. All that's going to do is disturb you. It's going to remove your tranquility. So he sets up in a garden and he allows women and slaves to attend his school. Good Lord. Now that is desperate. Anybody will tell you that's a bad idea. Because he saw no distinction. He's perhaps the earliest radical believer in human equality that we have, uh, certainly in this part of the world. He really felt, in practice, not just felt this, didn't argue this, but, but worked this out, that women and slaves were perfectly capable of understanding, profiting from, and enacting the wisdom that he was preaching. This runs counter to, again, the entire social structure of Greek civilization, and in fact, almost every civilization in the world at that time. 
So Epicurus is a very strange thing he's doing here. He says, withdraw from the world and focus on a private group's primarily friends. What you want in life, what makes life good and allows you to achieve tranquility are friends. So this is what he sets up. A school in a garden, isolated from the rest of the community, where he says, don't have anything to do with people if you can avoid it, because they just make your life goofy. Uh, Don't do politics. Respect women and slaves as your equals. and, And life will work out. Did many men show up? Yes, many, 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 many people showed up. This is the interesting thing. They lived sort of moderately communally um, and, and seemed to enjoy themselves immensely, which also got the rumors spread that, that, he was, that they were having like orgies and it was just this big party that was rolling all the time. Because why else would you invite women and slaves? Right? It would make no, no sense. You certainly aren't talking to them. Uh, and Epicurus basically said, sure, fine, whatever you guys think, I don't care. He also thought you should live as invisibly as possible. Being invisible is good. You don't want to be generally known. You want a quiet group of friends away from the world. Because again, invisibility probably helps with tranquility. So two halves of his philosophy. The first half, as I mentioned, was the natural philosophy. And essentially, Epicurus got every possible tenet of the foundation of science wrong. Uh, so, if you want to read this part of his writings, knock yourself out. You know, you, you can. There's not a lot of that anyway. Like I said, this is all we have. Uh, but you can read Dururum Natura, a big long poem, very fascinating, from uh, a follower of Epicurus that lays out his entire theory of how the world works. Again, I mean, he didn't do badly considering what he has to work with, but basically, it's all wrong. So uh, it's an early attempt at science, an attempt to apply reason to what you could experience and explain everything from that. That's the goal. No gods making the sun rise and fall, no invisible spirits at work, no absolute transcendent souls. All that crap is gone. He doesn't believe in any of it. If you can't touch it, see it, feel it, or think about it, it doesn't exist. Now, in his writings, you'll see he says that the gods do exist. And it's not clear exactly what he meant by this because every single proposition, except for when he talks directly about the gods, clearly states he does not believe in the gods at all. What he does say is the gods exist, but they want nothing to do with the human beings. So people have said that that our founding fathers of the United States, this argument comes up that they were religious. Well, some of them were, some of them weren't, but, but some of them were religious in the sense that they believed that the universe was created by a God who then left. Literally. And this, this philosophy is very much taken directly from the Epicurean school. That yes, there might be gods. Yes, they might be out there. They're perfect. That's wonderful. They have nothing to do with human beings at all. And so whether he had to posit this not to be killed or whether he really believed this and said, yes, fine, there's gods, whatever, they're out there. They, they just don't have anything to do with us, so stop talking about them. It's hard to know which is true at a you know, several thousand year remove. But what is clear, he has allowed no explanations for anything that had any element of the supernatural in them at all. He was 100% opposed to that. Because he thought, then fear enters. There's some force, some 
supernatural power that might influence us, affect our lives, overwhelm us. And we have to appease that power or pray to that power or, or in some way uh, try to ameliorate our relationships with it. And he says that is soul killing. This is what be- makes a man afraid and makes a man less than he should be. So his whole thrust of his natural philosophy was try to solve all these problems so that we didn't have to have natural or supernatural explanations. The other side of his work, which I want to focus on, because like I said, he was just wrong about everything. His, his, his drive was good, but his answers were, you know, wrong. Uh, so we, but we know that now. We've worked by a lot of this stuff since then, a couple of thousand years advantage. His ethical philosophy, however, is the other side of this. If there is no, are no supernatural forces, there are no gods, essentially, that have anything to do with us, what is the purpose of life? Ah, ataraxia, tranquility. What you want to pursue is a life of pleasure understood as peaceful enjoyment. This is the highest goal of life. This is the highest good. As such, the most important value that you have is prudence. So Aristotle and Plato and Socrates all talked about wisdom, right? The philosopher needs wisdom. That's the highest good. To know the truth is to do right, um, Aristotle argues, as does Plato. Do you think the Beatles, when they said, dear Prudence, are talking about the <laughs> No, I don't, I don't think so. No. But maybe. Uh, but yeah, so Prudence is what you need. Because Prudence is going to allow you to decide on various courses of action. I just thought of an example. I, I just looked it up before coming in because I, I heard this on the news a couple of days ago. I thought this encapsulates Epicurus' philosophy very well in some ways. Um, right now, 10% of the population has diabetes. And we're moving to 30% by like 2030. Of that, 0.27%, so not very many, have type 1, which is the type you inherit. Which means that almost everybody who has diabetes, which is 1 in 10 Americans roughly, soon to be 1 in 3, um, has type 2 diabetes, which is voluntary. You have to go out and get type 2 diabetes at the store. <laughs> right? And, and this is the question of prudence. Now, no one wants diabetes in theory. In practice, we do want it. Or at least a good percentage of our population does. Because if you exercise poorly and have a bad diet, then you're, you're probably going to acquire diabetes, or at least increases your chances dramatically. Not type 1, by the way, which is inherited, but type 2. Now, Epicurus says that is a lack of prudence, because the pleasures that you gain from eating whatever the hell you want are more than offset by the pain you're going to experience as a diabetic. And that every decision you make, 
The entirety of Epicurean philosophy is directed at this central question. When you weigh out the pluses and the minuses, the long range and the short range, the immediate versus the future, where is the balance for ataraxia? If the balance is for it, then whatever it is, is good. By the way, er, uh, Aristotle, Epicurus says quite clearly in many places, there is, there are no bad pleasures as such. All pleasure is good. So let's just say that you happen to enjoy immensely torturing your neighbor's children to death slowly. Right? Is that bad? According to Epicurus, no. That's great. That's wonderful. That's a great and noble pleasure. Ah! With the hitch. It's probably going to piss your neighbors off. And then they're going to do something that's going to make your life unpleasant. So what you will end up with is a lack of ataraxia. Your tranquility will be disturbed when your neighbors come and kill you. Right? This is where Dracula went wrong. When the villagers all gather around and burn your castle down, your ataraxia is thrown way out of whack. Right? So every pleasure from what you eat to who you spend time with for what you do should be weighed in those balances. But he says, in essence, he's completely amoral. This is important to note. Epicurus is perhaps the first radically amoral philosopher in history. He says there are no good and bad things as such in themselves. He says there are only things which add to or detract from your sense of pleasure, again understood as, as this sense of, of, of joyous tranquility. And so He's tricky to get a handle on. Another, in, in a letter, uh, which I didn't recount, um, I think it's from the uh, Vatican. Did I mention that they found some of his works in the Vatican? Yeah. So in, from the Vatican uh, fragments, one of his followers wrote him, and from the context that we have, what Epicurus wrote, it sounds like his follower wrote him and said, wow, I really like to have sex. I know I'm young and I have all these carnal desires, so I go out and have all this sex. And, you know, is that okay? And Epicurus wrote him back and said, Yes and no, <laughs> as, as, as philosophers love to do. Uh, he said yes and no. The, des- the de- drive is natural. That's good. That's fine. Natural desires are excellent. Don't worry about that. The problem is, if in pursuing the fulfillment of those desires, you create trouble for yourselves. If you pursue them in a way that breaks the law, or upsets your neighbors, literally he says upsets your neighbors, or creates other difficulties in your life, then you have to say, are the pleasures of sex outweighed, weighing the pleasures of the trouble of having sex? If yes, then you, then you should not bother. If no, then absolutely go out of all the sex you want. So it's this very clear, he, just, he returns this over and over and over again. And so you have to ask yourself a whole number of questions. Where does the desire come from? He says the natural desires, as we experience them, are generally easily fulfilled. Getting enough food, not that big of a problem. Ah, getting really fancy food, expensive food, feasts, 
ostentatious consumption of food, that's the problem. Now, where does the desire for the ostentatious consumption of food come from? Well, turns out it comes probably not from nature, but from society. Hence, what you desire to eat, you have to ask yourself, is this my natural desire to have sustenance, which if I do not fulfill it, will cause pain? Pain, well, we have a lot of functions. Pain upsets your tranquility. And hence is bad. You want to eliminate pain if you can. But do you really suffer if you eat brown rice, maybe a little something on the side, a few vegetables, versus a 12-course dinner? Won't your natural desire for food be eliminated with either of them, but one of them being more expensive, more time-consuming, will be immensely more troublesome? <laughs> No problem. You got that? All right. So, so this thing, he tries to balance all the time. And so in a strange way, Epicurus, as a philosopher who starts off pre uh, preaching pleasure and tranquility, becomes almost ascetic. Not quite. But to that point where he says, you don't want to mortify the flesh. You just want to ask yourself which of your desires are Natural, good, easy to fulfill. We'll take questions at the end. Um, easy to fulfill, right? And that's also part of his, his notion. He, he discusses that not everybody's desires will be the same. He says we have certain animal desires that will all be shared. But as human beings, he says, look, not everybody wants the same things. And depending on where you are and when you are, not all desires are equally easily fulfilled. So if you have some desire that's easy to fulfill but moderately unnatural, hey, knock yourself out. Who cares? <laughs> if it makes you happy, go ahead. Doesn't disturb your tranquility? Wonderful. Ah, if you have some other desire that is exceptionally difficult to fulfill, now we're in trouble. Why are you pursuing that? You have to ask yourself. What is the perceived gain? At the same time, he says, look, not all pain is bad. He says, sometimes we choose short pain because we see that we'll gain a much greater benefit in the long run. He says, that's a reasonable exchange. So that if you want to have some pain for a greater gain of pleasure at the end, wonderful. He says, but again, you have to ask yourself very carefully, where does this desire come from? Why am I enduring this pain? Why am I doing something I don't want to do, something that might disrupt my tranquility? Is it something I really want? Is it something I really need? Or is it some unnatural social desire? And so he emphasized, along with the notion of prudence, clearly the closely associated notion of reason. Only by reasoning clearly and without fear can you ever achieve any sense of personal free thinking? Any sense of careful, clear reflection? Because if you don't have re reason, then how do you know what's going on? Then you're basically a slave to your emotions. 
But he said, this is a very, very bad way to be. So with prudence and reason, you get this notion of weighing everything. And by everything, he meant everything. Because he believed, I'm running on a board here, in sensation. You know the world through your senses, through your experience. <coughs> the only thing you should trust is your experience or the experiences of people you know. This is why he's suspicious of the gods. If the gods came and knocked on his door and punched him in the face, he would say, okay, the gods exist. Since they hadn't, he felt they did not. Because he had no direct experience of them. He had no sense experience that allowed him to hang on to that. And so he said, you apply your reason and prudence to your sense experience. And then you had to ponder what this meant. So if everybody else said, hey, it's really great to swim in the ocean, and he went and swam in the ocean, he got cold and didn't like it and tired himself out, then your reason and prudence needed to tell you it doesn't matter what everybody else says. My experience of this is different, and therefore I will go with my experience of this. So it's this a gay sort of, sort of antinomian in its implications, which is why it was controversial in his own time, but also very attractive. How do you feel about it? What did you experience? What do you think about it? Okay, that's what's true. There is no inherent good and evil. There is no right and wrong. You can't appeal to that. Notice when we talked about Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, they're all trying to appeal to the divine in one way or another. Because once you have the divine, you could found your ideas absolutely. Absolute truth, absolute wisdom. The absolute good for the most. Epicurus just throws that all away. He says, no, 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 no. That's not how we experience the world. We experience the world one person at a time. We experience as an individual. There is no abstract concept that we can appeal to. There's only our feeling of the world and how it works. And so his, he just builds a system that also relies, not surprisingly, on the last element I want to introduce, friends. He says, the single greatest source of good living in your life are your friends. He was not huge on marriage. He, he, at some time he seemed to be moderately against it, sometime he thought it was okay, but mostly he was neutral. Which, I mean, it's, it depends. We have fragments from 2,000 years ago again, so it's, so it's difficult. He was clearly neutral on slavery. He had slaves, but everybody in Athens had slaves. It was essentially impossible not to have slaves if you weren't a slave. Um, all of whom he freed when he died. We have part of his will. Um, and he had slaves who came to his school. So clearly... He was pretty neutral on slavery or thought it was a bad idea, but he's not going to do anything about it because he's not the kind that does things about things. Um, it would upset your tranquility uh, to try and do anything about anything. What you need are friends. Because friends do several crucial things. One, they help you reason. Because we do deceive ourselves. He was perfectly clear on this. And so a friend is someone you can say, excuse me, am I deceiving myself? And then they say, yes. 
And you go, crap, again? Right? That's, that's, that's what friends are for, right? We, we, I mean, my, my favorite example is when someone is going out with or marrying uh, someone that everybody else who knows them knows this is just stupid and bad and wrong, right? And you all sit there and go, that's stupid and bad and wrong. And the person goes, no, what are you talking about? And it's like... Yeah, my favorite example is when my brother got married, we took a, a pool on, on the date of the divorce at the, at the rehearsal dinner. And so uh, everybody put in 20 bucks and we all picked a date on the calendar at the rehearsal dinner because it was obvious. I mean, we all knew it. it's like, get a divorce lawyer now, because here we right? And so my, my sister won. Uh, and then when, uh, when my brother got a divorce and my sister was like, yes, uh, I win. Uh, then he, my brother's like, well, why didn't you guys tell me? And we're like, well, would you listen? And he goes, no. <laughs> ah, that's the key. You need friends, but you also need to listen to them because they will help you reason, or at least they're supposed to help you reason. This is, this is one of the elements of friends. Now, if they continuously lead you into trouble, then they are, by definition, not your friend, and you need to pitch them. Right, so we, we sort of err in both ways, listening to them too much and listening to them too little, right? Again, back to prudence. It's always back to prudence. Uh, second, er, uh, Epicurus recognized that in the world of men, the best or one of the defenses of men is friends, right? He didn't trust humanity in general. In fact, he thought rather lowly of humanity in general. He thought they create trouble. You want to be friendly with your neighbors. And, and be quiet and not create trouble for them because they can create trouble for you. He comes back to this again and again. It makes you suspicious of how, what his neighbors thought of his garden because he was always trying to say, no, be good to your neighbors, be pleasant to your neighbors. If for no other reason, then you have to live with them. Um, so your friends are an aid to you and a defense against the outside world. So they help you reason and they defend you in, in times of trouble against the unknown. Now, it's important to note that Epicurus also felt that for the wise man, there's almost no sort of um, random act against you. The universe is essentially benign, perhaps even benevolent. The whole fact that we're here made him think that the universe was essentially benign and benevolent. That 95% of the trouble that comes to us comes at our bidding. We ask for trouble, and then we get it, and we go, oh my God! <laughs> right? And what the hell? How did that right? We do this all the time. And Epicurus felt that this was showed a lack of wisdom and prudence. And so, for the wise... The world is not scary or unknown. Now, there are a few things that happen. I mean, amazingly, in a war-torn civilization that he existed in, he still cleaved to this. In our time, he would have thought this was absolutely true. But for him, he says, 95% of what befalls us that is ill befalls us at our own bidding. It's because we seek excess wealth, excess pleasure, excess fame, excess food, something that we don't really need, that we want it for the wrong reasons, we pursue it for the wrong reasons, and hence we suffer. And then when we suffer, we think, oh, wow, why is this happening to me? The fates are against me. 
There's a, there's a great scene, I think, in, in uh, Agamemnon, the play, by Sophocles, where Agamemnon is complaining, and then Zeus is like, why is he complaining? We sent a messenger to him and told him not to do this, and he does it, and now we're going to smite him, and he complains. I hate mortals. <laughs> we tell them what to do, they never do it, and then we have to smite them, and they complain. I'm sick of the complaining. It's this great moment where Zeus is like, ah, what do I have to do? Right? But we know this. We've all done this, right? Where we, we just do something and in retrospect we realize I was just inflicting pain on myself. Why would I do that? Epicurus is like, yes, why would we do this? It seems silly. Uh, so he built a system on trying not to do that, which you would think would be easy, but turns out to be remarkably tricky. How do you keep people from inflicting pain on themselves? It's, it turns out that human beings almost impossible. <laughs> right? And so... That's where the friends come in. They're part of his withdrawal from the world. Another part of his withdrawal from the world that creates problems is suspicion of wealth. Now, he's not against money because he recognized money can be a cushion against the world. Right? Money sort of smooths the gears if you live in a society in which money is a significant portion, which, which he did and which obviously we do. So not having money is going to create a lot of problems for you. But trying to get more money than you need is going to create a lot of problems for you. And so the key is to figure out, well, how much money do you really need? How much wealth do you have to have? Because if you get too little... The notion of, oh, we'll just give away all money. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> it might work for you, but in our society, it might also just make your life a real pain. It's, it's going to create trouble. Too much money, or the, he didn't care about too much money, the pursuit of too much money is going to certainly upset your tranquility. Because if, if 50,000 is not enough, how about 100? If 100,000 is not enough, how about 200? 500? How about a billion? When is it enough? Right? When do you decide that enough is enough? Well, he says, that's what you need to be thinking about. This is what prudence is about again. The ability to judge this and say, you know, really anything above this level is unnecessary. It's more pain to get more money than it is to live without that extra resource. He said that the wants, the desires of nature are few and simply fulfilled. The desires of fancy are infinite. Right? What, what we come up with in our heads and say, wow, I really, really need that. And then, you know, do you really? I don't know. Is it that much better? I don't know. Can't you not live without it? Probably. You know, this, 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 this whole struggle that we have. But he thought that if, if you could have friends to help you, could avoid wealth and, and learn to understand and deal with your desires, right? channel them, understand them, reflect on them. Where do they come from? Um, it's not from Epicurus, but it's a, a letter from a follower of Epicurus. 
Um, I can't remember who wrote it now. It doesn't stick in my head. But he's writing to a young father the same thing, sexual desire. And he says, more or less, summarizing, look, masturbate. It'll make you feel better. If you do this a lot and you're still interested in the girl, then yeah, maybe you should pursue her. If not, then all you have is animal desires that are attaching themselves to an object at random. Don't upset yourself about this. Right? Exercise prudence. Now that's wisdom from like 2100 years ago. And, he, and But they just said, look, you have to understand your desires. If you have a desire for food, you have to ask yourself, have you not eaten enough? If the answer is, yeah, I haven't eaten in two days, then by God, go get yourself some food. If the answer is, well, I just ate some donuts and I want some more donuts, the answer is, well, you've got a desire problem. It's so clear now. Yeah, yeah, this is the thing, right? And so, but you have to do this continually. And he also said, by the way, that unnatural desires are not bad either. If they're easily fulfilled. Again, it's back to the ease of fulfillment issue. If it's not going to cause you any trouble, then go right ahead. Why not? But that's the only question. Um, and this goes for everything. Another example I, I had is, is <laughs> exercise. He, he does talk about the physical body and maintaining that a lot because, of course, if your physical body degrades, which it inevitably does, this becomes can upset your tranquility. And so I thought about like people who run for exercise. Oh, well, that's probably good for you. But generally what they start to do is they want to run faster and farther in less time. And eventually this actually becomes bad for you. Right? And, and, and that was another fear. It's like, well, running is easy and cheap in theory. Why not? But when does the desire turn wrong for you? Friends are a theoretical good. But if you want too many friends too often, then that becomes a bad. Right? So... Everything has to be weighed in this. So well, let's look at a few of these specific examples here, some of these fragments. Um, look at five. Let's sort of summarize some of this here. It's on there. That's why I want to hand it. It's impossible to live a pleasant life without living wisely and honorably and justly, and it's impossible to live wisely and honorably and justly without living pleasantly. Notice this. This is... I mean... That sounds easy and straightforward, an absolute contradiction of everything the ancient Greeks believed, and pretty much an absolute contradiction of everything we believe. Notice self-sacrifice. Epicurus thinks that's stupid. Why would you sacrifice yourself? People go, oh, you know, I'm going to sacrifice myself to help somebody. Epicurus would say, why? That's probably dumb. You probably ought not do it. What are you going to get out of it? It would be his question. Because if you're not going to get an increase in tranquility, then don't help them. He was, he was very suspicious of these notions. right? Because if you're not living pleasantly, then you're not living wisely. And you're living unjustly. Notice he, he balls those all up. And we always want to separate them out. Oh, I have to do the right thing. I mean, we're always told this, right? We have all these examples. I did the right thing and I suffered for it and that makes me noble. Um, Epicurus says, no, that means you did the wrong thing and you're suffering because you're dumb. <laughs> right? That's, that's the Epicurean line. And so he would say, don't do dumb things. 
people say, I'm suffering. He's like, well, you're dumb. That's sort of, I can't help it. It means you're not wise. Or you're unjust, or both. The fact that you aren't living pleasantly is proof. Right? And so when people would complain to him in theory, and, and some of the letters suggest this quite directly, he would go, well, well, don't be unwise or unjust, and you won't have an unpleasant life. So any notion of self-sacrifice or anything like that, he just had no time for it at all. And, which, and in the Greek world, where their big idea, which is where we started from, was the agon, right? Where we get the word agony. Right? You're supposed to be out there jabbing spears through Trojans. And the curious is like, wow, that's sharp. <laughs> it seems to me that if I pick that up and carry it someplace, somebody with an equally sharp thing is going to jab it at me, which is definitely going to upset my tranquility. So let's just put that down and walk away. And we'll be much happier for this. It's a very quietest idea. And for the Greek world, this was horrifying. Fight for your city. He's like, flee for your city. <laughs> right? If there needs some fleeing to be done, I'm your man. Because fighting doesn't look like it would be fun at all. Uh, so this, is, this notion is, is sort of, he just didn't care a lot. Another thing that he is also embodying here with the uh, political time is the forces of empire are at work for the first time in Greek history on the Greeks themselves. They were fighting amongst themselves. That seemed okay. But now that you have the Macedonians and other imperial forces taking over and splitting up and the huge Greek, huge Greek empire spreading out. Ah, what difference does it make who rules you? Whoever rules you is probably, you know, in the equivalent of thousands of miles away. Be closer, but in that time, you know, it took so long to travel. If they were just... And then, so a ruler could come in one day, say, I rule, and everyone was like, okay. And like four weeks later, another ruler could come in and say, well, that king died, and we divide things up, now I'm in charge. Epicurus thought the idea of standing up to these people and going, no, we're loyal to the last guy was insane. Does it really matter that much? Probably not. Probably not. Let's not worry about it. Right, so this, so five is huge because, like I said, it runs almost kind of like patriotism. You would think patriotism, you'd be like, really? So what you've got is an abstraction that you want to sacrifice yourself for so that the abstraction feels better. Why would you do that? What the hell are you talking about? So you would have no patriotism, no, not dealing it. Um, six, in order to obtain protection from other men, any means for attaining this end is a natural good. This lets you know how he feels about other men. Right? You recognize that the greatest problem in living a tranquil, pleasant life is not the gods, not fate, not the natural world, all of which he thought were fine or non-existent, but other men. Or us being stupid. Right? Ourselves or other men. Um, and so th th that was a huge one for him. And then eight, which I talked about before, no pleasure is a bad thing in itself. No pleasure is a bad thing in itself. Absolute, full amorality. And this is not the only place where he says this. But the things which produce certain pleasures entail disturbances many times greater than the pleasures themselves. You wouldn't think this would be confusing. But wow, aren't we confused on this often? <laughs> I always think diamonds are, are the great example of this. People pay a lot of money for diamonds, which are just, I mean, it's weird. And it throws me off completely. 
Why? Particularly when it turns out that they're artificially scarce. They're naturally super abundant. They're one of the most abundant things on the planet. We're absolutely swimming in diamonds. You can go to the hardware store and get diamond bit saws. Why? Because they're everywhere. And yet, we love the things. I don't know. It's great. So, but the pleasure in diamonds is not bad. And if you had diamonds in your yard and you could dig them up and cut them and wear them, you'd be like, great. Does that refer to 15? Uh, yeah, potentially. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. You have this full opportunity. Do that. Wear all the diamonds you want. But how much time do you want to spend trying to earn money or do other things to get diamonds? It just doesn't seem worth it to him or anything else like that. Twelve explains why he's so interested in natural philosophy. It is impossible for someone to dispel his fears about the most important matters if he doesn't know the nature of the universe, but still give some credence to myths. So without the study of nature, there is no enjoyment of pure pleasure. He is opposed to myths of all kinds. You cannot emphasize this enough. He hates myths. He thinks they destroy our capacity to reason and upset our tranquility because we believe things that are not so. And this creates all kinds of problems for us. He says it's okay to say you don't know and it's okay to say this is true because of, of my reasoning on this. But it's not okay, again, to have any mythological or supernatural explanation at all. And, and this just drove his community crazy. They thought this was nuts. I mean, you had legal obligation to perform religious duties if you were a citizen of Athens, which he was. In such a society to wander around saying, myths are stupid, you ought not believe them and act on them. Wow. Right? And he and again returns to this over and over again. Yeah, 15. The wealth required by nature is limited and easy to procure. But the wealth required by vain ideals extends to infinity. Right? It's always that question. I, in fact, one of my, I, I love this notion. Uh, people have seen like the tiny house movement. Yeah. They build the really small. They build really small houses, like yeah. two, three, four hundred square feet. But they have to build them on on trailer axles because it's illegal to build small houses in this most regions of this country. There is no maximum size. You can build a house as big as you want. Build you know ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand, fifty thousand square feet. That's fine. That's good. Even in fact, we think that's great. But you can't build a small one. Right, which to me is like the legal reincarnation of 15. Right? We could all live perfectly happily in three or four hundred square foot houses with some outbuildings or maybe two of those put together if we have a big family or whatever. That's great. We can do this in any way we wanted. Ah. But you're not allowed to do that. It's too easy. Too cheap. Too simple. Too natural. No, no, no. But a 5,000 square foot house, absolutely knock yourself out. That's great. You know, and so this notion of making simple things difficult, either through our own vanity, or, in this case, actually codified into law, which is weird when you think about it. I know, let's make it difficult for people to afford places to live. That seems like a good plan, right? Do we need to do that? 
Apparently we do need to do that. Make it difficult. So that's his idea there. Main ideals extends to infinity. That's my phone. Sorry, yeah, there we go. 23. If you fight against all your sensations, you will have no standards to which to refer, and thus no means of judging even those sensations which you can claim are false. So this again, you have to believe what you experience. You would think this would be obvious and simple, and yet it's not at all. Again, this is one of his problems with the gods. If they would walk up to him and talk to him, he would be much more likely to believe in them. Since they don't, he doesn't. If you can't demonstrate it through factual, sensual experience, it's not true, or at least you have to hold it in abeyance. This is what I like about cars. You know, they put emblems on cars, like BMW, Mercedes, Ford. Uh, Otherwise, right, you wouldn't know. (laughs) Because your experience of them would not allow you to judge that these are different and better or less good. See, see, they know this. And so they have to put a label on there that says, this is really good and you ought to pay a lot for it. This is a piece of crap, but we'll sell it to you cheap. <laughs> so our, our experience, if we could trust it, you could make these judgments, but they're not going to let us trust our judgments because if we did, they know exactly what would happen. We wouldn't be able to tell the difference because we can't. Otherwise, you don't have to put the labels on them. The, the, the example of that is, uh, a couple years ago, I don't, probably still true, it's like two years ago, um, BMW had a two-year, 26,000-mile warranty. And a Kia had a 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty. <laughs> Who's making the better car? <laughs> I mean, a 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty makes me think, I want that car. But everybody knows that BMW is driving excellence. Those Germans know what they're doing. Those Koreans don't. I don't know. It just, but the warranty would suggest strongly, if you just walked up to a car and you couldn't see it or something or didn't know, and they said, oh, this one's guaranteed for 100,000 miles or 10 years, and this one for two years or 20,000 miles, which one do you think is better? You'd go, well, is that a, what, am I stupid? Is there a trick to this question? The trick is one's cheap to fix and the other one's really expensive to fix. See, it's crazy. So yeah, so but we don't trust our sensation often. We don't trust our experiences. How many of I mean we've all had this, right? Where where we go we meet somebody or we're in a situation and our first sense is like, ooh, this is no good. And then we go, oh well, we'll fight through that. And then a couple months later we go, oh, it was no good. Yeah, you know, there's a 25 is again back to reason and prudence. If you do not on every occasion refer each of your actions to the ultimate end prescribed by nature, but instead of this in the act of choice or avoidance turn to some other end, your actions will not be consistent with your theories. What are you trying to achieve? You're trying to achieve pleasurable tranquility. If that's your end, then you have to say, does this action contribute to that? Yes or no? If no, don't do it. 
If yes, do it. That's your only question. It's not a question of morals. It's not a question of right and wrong. It's not a question of what the neighbors think. It's not a question of money or not money or fame or not fame. or No. It's, it's an absolute arbiter that's set up, but it's not one that has any value in it. Because you have to decide for yourself in your situation, which he says in other places is variable, both in historical circumstances and in personal attributes and preferences. He talks about inherited or, or what you're born with versus what you acquire societally versus the animal. So he makes a very nice threefold distinction um, uh, in other places. We don't have time to go into it, but it's a, it's a nice way that he talks about that. Um, let's look at 26. He talks a lot about pain. We now understand that all desires that do not lead to pain when they remain unsatisfied or unnecessary. But the desire is easily got rid of when the, end, when the thing desired is difficult to obtain or the desires seem likely to produce harm. So he says, part of his theory of pleasure is that pleasure is the absence of pain. And so that really what we think of as pleasure is, is at least as much, if not more, about removing things that are unpleasurable. And he says, so if you desire something... And you, got, you should stop and ask yourself, if I don't get this, will I suffer some pain? Right? If I don't get, I don't know, what do I, something, a really big TV, right? <laughs> what pain will I suffer thereby? <laughs> will my friends mock me because I have a 40-inch rather than a 50-inch television? If so... They suspect that I should get some new friends. <laughs> right? That the pain I'm feeling is not TV lack, but a bad collection of friends. Right? Is the TV going to be a lot better if it's really big? I'm always suspicious of this. Why is something bad when it's small and good when it's big? But there you go. Um, you know, if, yes, if you could identify it and say, you know, Really, if I had a bigger TV, something particularly good would come of it, then he would say, get the TV. If not, don't get the TV. Very simple, very straightforward. But one way of asking yourself, and this is a good question, by the way, I suggest running this experiment, is the pain question. Really, am I going to suffer if I don't get this or fulfill this desire? Often the answer is, well, not really. I've lived this long without it. You know, is it that important? Is this really that crucial? And if you ponder with the, the sort of the, the pain notion, a lot of times you end up going, yeah, yeah, not really. Who cares? Um, there's one, one person suggested putting your uh, credit cards in a block of ice in your freezer. Yeah. <laughs> so if you wanted something, you had to wait at least as long as it took the ice to melt. <laughs> And he said, often, that amount of time is long enough to go, oh, I don't really care after all. <laughs> right? Just pause and reflect. We hate pause and reflect, but that's what it's really about. Um, look at 29. Let's move back to the... Of a desire, some are natural and necessary. Others are natural but not necessary. And others are neither natural nor necessary, but are due to groundless opinion. You know? This is, this is, 
I think that's a pretty good... You have natural desires that are necessary. Food, water, companionship, living in... in, in and again, in Epicurus, naturally, doesn't mean just animal in this case. He means, like, for people to live in communities. He thinks that's both natural and good, right? That's natural and necessary. Other ones are natural, but not necessary, right? Perfectly understandable, but really not all that necessary. Say, say maybe like something like eating meat, drinking wine. They're nice, they're wonderful, it's a natural desire, we understand where everybody wants it, but you don't die if you don't get it. And it's important to note that, because it might be easy to get meat, and pleasant to get meat, so let's eat some meat, but if not, he's not the kind of guy that's going to go out hunting for meat, because that would be a lot of work and upset his tranquility again. <laughs> but then others are neither natural nor necessary. Where the hell did this desire come from? And why? I, I, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, like $1,100 shoes. I'm like, really? $1,100 shoes, wow. I guess if you got $1,100, that's fine, but it doesn't seem natural or necessary. Right? It seems like you might be able to live a fulfilled life without them, but I could be wrong. And then he goes on, 30 is basically a follow from there. Those natural desires which entail no pain when unsatisfied, though pursued with an intense effort, are also due to grandless opinion. Ah. He says, if it's a natural desire, but you don't suffer any pain when they aren't fulfilled, but they take a lot of work to get, you're, you're back to groundless opinion. You thought it was a natural desire, and you were wrong. Um, anything that's a natural desire should not be that difficult to attain. This is one of his central tenets. Because he believes, as I mentioned earlier, but this is important, he believes in a benign world. He believes that nature is essentially kindly and helpful to mankind. And mankind screws it up every possible way he can. Which is amazing from 2,200 years ago. I think if we looked around today, he'd be like, yeah, see what I said? <laughs> Good Lord, I kept trying to tell you guys. And then 40, those who possess the power to defend themselves against threats by their neighbors, being thus in possession of the surest guarantee of security, live the most pleasant life with one another. And their enjoyment of the fullest intimacy is such that if one of them dies prematurely, the others do not lament his death though as though it is called for pity. So you live pleasantly in your community. Secure, not with your neighbors, but against them. He's, he's always suspicious of those around him. He's like, you don't want security with them, you want from them. You want to be independent. You want to be able to rely on your friends and your intimates to live a quiet, retired life of contemplation and prudence and reason. That, for Epicurus, is the greatest possible good. So that is Epicurus. Thank you very much. Uh, questions? Questions?